0: God gave me that second chance and so you know if God's gift to me was sobriety the only thing I can do is give back to him by what I've done and so and what I continue to do which is give back because I I, there's no way I can keep what I've been given there's no way my rule is I have the 72 hour rule I never let 72 hours go by without not talking to that person because the resentment grows, it grows and it grows and it grows, and then all of a sudden, you'll be mad at somebody for six months. You don't even remember what you were really mad about, but you're not even talking to them because now you can't talk to them because you got to stick to your resentment. Once I once I really dove into my faith. Um, I realized that guilt and shame is something that the devil just wants wants me to feel. And so I finally get asked for gambling and then God's like, hey moron, I've been here the whole time. You need to turn it all over. Not some of it over, not part of it over, everything. You're all in or you're not in.
1: Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, a leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it. So much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, the stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human, so love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I wanna be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're gonna be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. The views and opinions expressed by those interviewed on I Have 12 Questions or myself are just opinions and our own personal experiences. We are not doctors or therapists or psychiatrists, so none of the recommendations or opinions expressed should be considered medical or psychological advice. There may be adult language contained in some of these episodes, as well as triggers around conversations regarding rape, sexual abuse, drug and alcohol usage, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and many other uh, topics that will come up when we are discussing addiction and recovery from addiction. So please use discretion. This podcast is not for everybody. Um, Hello, I have 12 questions community. So we have a great story on our hands today. Our guest is Mike Anderson, and he's a very successful recruiter uh, and sales leader in his professional life. But I've asked him here today to tell us about his sobriety and his story and his faith. Um, and I don't know Mike in real life, we've exchanged some emails. We just caught up for a little bit before this interview. Um, but it's really cool because he's an open book and he's just willing to open up and tell his story. Um, so I really appreciate your vulnerability, first of all, Mike, and your willingness to just talk to us about everything. Um, and I have to say, you are—you—you you call yourself a sober follower of Jesus and a sales leader in the talent acquisition space, which I just talked about a little bit. Um, so I'm going to start with an icebreaker. This doesn't count as one of my questions, but sometimes these conversations, they're fun and they're funny, but they can also get a little serious because sometimes we go back through maybe some dark things. Um, so if you were a professional wrestler, what would your, what would your uh, stage name be and your walk-up Song. <laughs> uh,
0: if I was a professional wrestler, what would my name be, and then what would the walk-up song be? Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna have to go with. If I was put on the spot. I would guess I would go with the Sober Tooth Tiger. <laughs> That's cheesy, but I'd go with it because whatever. I don't even
1: know what that is. Okay, I'm ready. I don't so. even know.
0: It's like a saber tooth tiger, but I'm sober, so a silver tooth tiger.
1: Oh, the stage name, your ring name. Okay, I was thinking it was a song, and I was like, I don't know. what like Okay, no, gotcha, gotcha.
0: I, be my, yeah, the silver tooth tiger, the silver tooth <laughs> tiger, so cheesy but maybe, maybe relevant. And then, uh, for the song, I'd have to go with Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith.
1: Oh, classic, yeah, I so love
0: it. Old school music, but like kind of a new school name, whatever. So, who knows? But, I, that would be what I would choose. That's I will okay. say this when I had a MySpace back in the day, Sweet Emotion was my song for like a month, and I was excited about it on my MySpace. I think it's-
1: I it's a classic. It, it never gets old. Wow, my space. That's a that's a throwback. Yeah. Um okay. So I'm going to start firing off questions and um I'm really excited to hear kind of your experience and your your story cuz every interview I do is just so different but similar too, right? And and that's a really cool thing about being in recovery. Um but in researching you, it sounds like you had some run-ins with the law like many of us have, uh, myself included. Several, in fact. Um, so what made you get clean and sober? Was there this rock bottom moment or a series of events that led up to a moment? Or were you just like, I just cannot do this anymore? What What was your, I guess, impetus to get sober and clean?
0: So um, so my sobriety date is uh, May 26th of 2018. So I've been sober a little over four and a half years. Um, but... For me, um, <laughs> there was a lot of, a lot of times when I, I knew I needed to get sober. I never did. I think my longest bout of sobriety, like just me, like, you know, white knuckling, it was like three weeks when I just, I had made a bad decision and my friends were like, Hey, she probably shouldn't drink. So I was like, I don't have to drink. And I didn't drink for like three weeks, but I was miserable not drinking. So I went right back to it and just tried not to be an idiot. But uh, many times um, throughout my, my 20s, Um, basically in 2009, my dad passed away, um, in November of 09. And I remember that was very hard. I lost my girlfriend five months before that. Um, and that was like a big, you know, turning point for me. I had lost my girlfriend and my dad in like a five month period and kind of this whole life that I had kind of set up in my mind had just went away. And I was like, you know, I had this idea of a higher power and God. And like, I thought a good God would never do this to me. So what is he doing? I mean i know a lot different now but at the time i didn't know so i basically put my middle fingers up to the sky and i said i'm doing it my way and so for from age 22 in november of 09 till all the way up to, to to may of 2018 um i just went i went crazy and i i partied and i slept around and i had many instances with the law and i drank and i did cocaine and i i gambled and it was just it was horrible it was horrible it was just a life that if you had a daughter or a, or you're raising somebody, I was everything. You would never want that person to be around a hundred percent, but yet I would act as I was the cool guy. We all know how that goes. So, um, I would imagine if listener, listeners are listening, they have an idea of what I'm talking about. We, we act as if, but we're miserable inside. So that was my twenties in 2011. I get DUI number one. Um, I was actually arrested by my, uh, a guy that I played college baseball with at my school. Um, he graduated, went in the police department, then he arrested me. <laughs> Crazy story. There. Yeah, so that's wild. So that was 2011, if that's, so that was like my first knock, and hey, maybe you should like chill out. But I was like, nah, forget it. 2012, 11 months later, DUI number two. Um, and so that happened and I was like, you know, what my solution is like drinking and driving, I'll just stop driving. Let's keep drinking. And that about the time was kind of when Uber started coming out. So I figured, great, that solves our problems. So I'll just keep drinking. And so I drank for another six years, um, aggressively, um, in 2014, I was introduced to cocaine. Um, and when I hit, when I introduced, when I was introduced to that. Like I had arrived, I made it, this was it. This was, I, I could drink as much as I wanted for as long as I wanted and do all of that. And, uh, and for, in, in four years, I spent over a hundred thousand dollars on cocaine. And that was, you know, I knew I had a problem when the guy that I was buying from, <laughs> he had an apartment when I first started going to him. And when I stopped going to him, he had a house. And that was probably, <laughs> that was probably like an issue that I should, I should have looked at. But anyways, so 2011 DUI, 2012 DUI, and then, about six or seven drunken publics for the next, I don't know, five, six years. And then in 2018, and this is kind of, hopefully I'm not going too long on your question, but I kind of want to set up the story. Okay, cool. So in 2018, um, here we are, it's it's May 25th of 2018. It's a Friday. Um, Now May 24th of 2018 is a Thursday. And I'm in sales and I had closed uh, two deals and in what I do, it's there's obviously some kind of like we didn't think they see that happening, but most of the time, like I know when a deal is going to happen and know when it's not. And in this instance, two deals closed that I didn't think were going to close, and uh, and so I had made like more money than I thought I was going to make. And my boss was out of town that week because she was going away from Memorial Day, and so I basically took off and I partied and I met my I met the, my, my 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 dope man, and uh, I bought eight eight balls of cocaine, and uh, it was crazy. It was a lot. And, uh, I was like, great, that's enough for maybe part of the weekend or whatever. And so I, uh, I ended up going, um, I, I, we partied Thursday night, we partied Friday, uh, we all the way through the night. I didn't go to work on Friday. I think I, I think I think literally, I think I skipped work. And then, um, Friday I go to, I'm I'm in Orange County and I go down to uh, Laguna around lunchtime because I had close two deals and it was a meet weekend and I was just rolling. I was still, I think I went on like two hours of like, drunk blow sleep from like 7 a.m. to like 9 a.m. It wasn't even real sleep. And I was, and I, and mind you, I had met my dope man, so I never got an Uber. So I was driving the whole time, which was a problem. Uh, But I typically didn't do that. So um, there was that. Now, if I'm going to backtrack real quick, which I'm not trying to be confusing, but in February of 2018, and I remember this vividly, I remember laying in, laying in my bed, and it was a midweek, and i when i was a drinker i drank thursday night friday night saturday night i recovered on sundays and i just basically compartmentalized my alcoholism and i was able to part or to work uh during the week and so i remember this it was like a tuesday in february of 2018 and in my faith you know i accepted jesus as my lord and savior when i was like 10 years old or something and what i believe is that the holy spirit comes into us and he's into us, he's into us at that time and and i had i didn't um the holy spirit Basically, I I, I muted them. I partied. I did everything. I didn't do anything. I I, I went through some stuff I went through to to keep partying. I talked about that. And so in 2018, February 2018, my DUIs are behind me. My drunken publics are behind me. And I just have this like... I'm laying in bed. um, And I was just by myself. It was like 9 o'clock at night. And I just had this like knock. And it was just like... Hey, what is it going to take for you to stop? And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to party anymore. Like I could do this, right? Like my dad was an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic. I would never be what my dad was. There's no way. Like I remember vividly thinking that. And so, and I didn't drink on Tuesdays already. So I didn't drink Tuesday, didn't drink Wednesday. And I'm like, I'm on to something. Didn't drink Thursday. And then Friday came around and my friends are like, Hey, we're going out again. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming. Like that's how quick it was in and out of my head. Right. So I just did that. And I had this tub. And I know that tug now to be the Holy Spirit, but I, I completely ignored it. Sunday or uh, fast forward to May 25th of 2018. I've now been partying for basically 36 hours. Um, I go, I'm driving to go meet my friends. I had just been with them at a bar, like six o'clock. We did happy hour or something. I closed out my tab and I went to go meet my friends. And I was going literally a mile and a half. And on two, and there's two stop lights. I don't even think there's a stop sign. Or there's sorry, two stop signs. I don't even think there's a stop light. And there's like nothing. There's and I remember I passed the first stop sign, passed the second stop sign, and all of a sudden I look up in my rearview mirror. Woo-hoo! Lights. And I remember on my second DUI, I had an attorney. The guy's name is Jeff. And Jeff told me, great attorney, by the way, if you're listening. Anyways, he calls me and he's like, or he told me on my second DUI. And he's like, and I don't know how it is in Texas, but in the state of California, it was like I just remember him being like, you can never get three DUIs in a period of 10 years. You can't do it. Like it's bad. Like if you get a third DUI in 10 years, like you're on death row or whatever he told me is what I heard. And like, it was bad. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I'm thinking myself, thinking to myself, okay, 2011, 2012, 2018, that's seven years. I'm screwed. Whatever. And now, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about this moment of clarity. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know anything about alcoholics on this. I mean, I knew about it because my dad kind of went to it to appease us, but like he was never really in the program. So I didn't know anything about it. So this cop comes up and he's coming up to my window. And I remember, and I've got two, eight balls of cocaine. I've had about 40 drinks in 24 hours. I'm going on two hours of sleep. I am obliterated, but I'm coherent because I remember it vividly. It's weird. Yep. And on the window and he's like, <laughs> he's like, do you know why I pulled you over? And I was like, uh, And I had this moment where I just said, if ever you're going to be honest, now's the time. And I was like, no, I don't know why you pulled me over, but I have two eight balls of cocaine in my pocket. I've had about 40 drinks. You should probably just arrest me. I literally said that to him. And I remember he's like, I swear. And I remember he's like, he's like, uh, you just ran a stop sign. And I was like, oh, and so I know, and I'm going on and on, but this will set up the story, but he... Anyways, this guy arrests me and I remember it to this day. I'm in the back of his car, officer, <laughs> I don't think I'm supposed to say his name, but I remember the officer's name vividly. And I'm in the back of his car and he's telling me, he's in the front seat driving and he's like, hey, I don't know what it is about you. And I, this conversation is so vivid to me. I don't know what it is about you, but I've got three kids your age. At the time I was 30, I'm 35 now, but I was 30 years old. I've got three kids about your age and I don't know what you're doing but something tells me that, you know, you need to stop. And I'm not sure what, what it is or why you were honest or why you babbled what you babbled. but you need to stop. So I was like, whatever. Okay. And I, I, I mean, I kind of heard it, but I didn't hear it. Went to jail. Remember laying in jail. And I remember looking up at the ceiling thinking, or the, the like the, whatever the bunk in front of me or whatever. And I remember just thinking to myself, it's over. I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to, it's over. It's, it's just over. And I, I didn't know what to do, what to think. They took my phone. They took everything, whatever. They For whatever reason, they didn't tow my car. I found out later that was because of my honesty about what I had on me. That's why they didn't tow my car. I also found out later, because of the honesty that I showed to that police officer, he did not put in the police report that I had separate cocaine in bags, which he could have got me for intent to distribute. And as I understand it, I would have went to jail from that day all the
1: way until my actual court date of July 6th. So I would have been in jail from May 25th all the way to July 6th, not
0: released. That's what I was told. That's what I later would learn. But because I was honest, he didn't put that in the police report. Anyways, he, the officer ends up telling me, and I remember this in jail, and he tells me, he goes, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I can remember on three occasions, you being the third, there was two people ahead of you that, like, you pull them over, and they're just like, uh, there's a body in the trunk or whatever. Like, they just, but you know, and... He's like, he's like, and both of those, those people have gotten what they needed out of life and they've, you know, gotten better, or, you know, served their time or whatever, but they're in better places. And I think that that could be your story. And I remember him telling me that and I kind of, at the time didn't want to hear it because I'm, you know, whatever it's right. It's, it's recent, you know, whatever. So, and I just, and I, and I remember him saying that. And, and, and to this day that me telling the truth is I think what set me down the path of recovery because I was able to get released on my own, own recognizance. And I remember when I I, had, I got my phone back the next morning, this is May 26th, which is my sobriety day. I got my phone back from the cops and I had like 8% left in my battery, enough to order an Uber from the jail, the Costa Mesa Police Department to where my car was. And I got my phone back and I didn't have a single missed call, a text, like a voicemail, I had nothing. And from, and I was going to go do what I was going to do with the people that I was always going to do with, that I had been doing it with for four or five years. And I remember, and I've since learned, if you want to find out who your friends are, get sober. And I've learned that later in through the program of the 12 steps and net, net, that moment when I, when I left that jail cell, I was the most depressed I'd ever been third DUI. I think I'm going to lose my job. I don't know what's coming at the time. I didn't know me telling the truth, if that was good or bad, I didn't know anything, And I can continue down my story, but that is what got me sober. And I can tell you the rest of the story if that is part of your questions. But hopefully that sets up where we're at.
1: Totally. Yeah. Yes. How did I do it? That was amazing. And it's so... It's so weird when people recount all of these details because it's so vivid, because we all remember that moment when we knew, when we decided, because we had tried so many different times, so many, we had made promises to ourselves, to other people. We had, you know, I can do it. I'm going to do it, you know, but for whatever reason that the, the time that it finally clicked, we all can, I can recount just like you just did the moment and the feeling and the gift of desperation, almost like you wanted to get caught. You were desperate to get out of the situation off the merry-go-round, but you didn't know how to do it. So you're like, please bust me. Someone protect me from myself. And it's just because you could have just gotten off with the stop sign, you know, whatever gone about, right. your way, but you'd probably be dead now, you know, or in prison or, or whatever. And so
0: and yeah, that thought, I mean, The book about that, that God does for us, we couldn't do for ourselves. If that's not what that is, I don't know what that is
1: that's it that's that's it so okay my next question so i'm not on like instagram and tiktok and all this you know whatever the kids are doing these days but i'm on linkedin just because of like you know work stuff and i saw this i was stalking you a little bit just trying to learn more about you and i saw that you bought your mom a house and i love it when i hear stories like this because like we all want to take care of our families it's just like the best feeling ever um and so tell me about that relationship in your life with your mom.
0: Okay. So that, that I kind of stopped where I stopped on my story because that's where this kind of picks up the whole thing. So it all kind of intertwines. So this might be another five minute answer, but just roll with it. Um, so I, I get arrested. I, I, I go, I get to take an Uber back to my car. I, I take my car. I end up I, my buddy. I stayed at my buddy's house. I just laid on his couch for like four days. My best friend, Andy Barrage. Um, and I remember I was staying at his dad's house with him and they kind of just, you know, and they, and they, see, they know what I've been through. They know I'm an alcoholic. They know it's a problem. And they're just like, they know it's going to be bad, but they're just like, yeah, you can lay on our couch for a couple of days. Cause I didn't know where to go. I didn't want to go home. Um, you know, to my, I lived alone. I didn't want to go to my place and be by myself. I just didn't know what to do. And so I lay on that couch and I remember thinking to myself, okay, I got to do two things. I've got to go, I've got to tell my attorney and I got to tell my mom. And so I called my mom and, uh, and I told my mom, um, you know, and at this point, remember, this is eight years of, I don't want to say it's like eight years of isolation, but like it's Christmas and Easter only. Uh, my, our pastor calls us CEOs, but I, don't, I saw my family like minimally, sporadically. My mom was, I always, this is a joke, but I always say, mom, I strengthen your faith because you're always praying for me. Um, but like, I always, you know, I, we, I knew she loved me. I knew she was never going to forsake me. I knew all of those things, but I never did. It was always her reaching me and never me. There was, it was not a two-sided relationship um, because I knew and what was weird is I was so dark in what I was doing that I didn't want to like expose my mom to that. I kind of remember that in my family, my brother, um, you know his, his wife and you know one of the things that I had to make amends for was being a drunk idiot at their wedding in 2014. That's a different conversation. But, um, but anyways, so I remember so now we're Monday Memorial Day and it's the day off and I remember I called my mom and now I'm on day three of sobriety. not even knowing that you count how you count sobriety, I just wasn't drinking. Um, and I hadn't been to an AA meeting yet, so I called my mom and I met my mom, my brother, and my my sister-in-law. And I remember we met at a Pete's Coffee in Tustin, California, and uh, and I laid out everything. And it was like the same like whatever inside of me I now know it to be what I believe to be God inside of me was like you got to tell the truth to this cop, you got to tell the truth to your family. Like there's no other way around it. You can't get better unless like darkness the, the lies are in the darkness right like that's the only way you can do this so you can make up anything you want and they're going to believe it because they don't know any different or you could just tell them everything and i just said okay and one thing that you've seen on my linkedin and various things if there's anything about me that is maybe to a fault is that i just like whatever and good matter or different i mean i've been on first dates where i tell my whole story and the girl's just like uh, i don't even know your name yet it's whatever anyways but um so uh Anyway, so, so I, I went and told my mom and I remember them all being in tears, but it was crazy. I remember that meeting and I remember at the end of that meeting, it was like two hours of me just talking, answering honestly as best I could about everything possible, not knowing what my fate was, not knowing anything. Um, and I remember telling them all of this stuff and they all were just like, they like were all in tears and they all just were like, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. We've known you had a problem, you know, like, well, like I hope we, whatever, what's the next step? And at that time, the next step was just go talk to an attorney to figure out what's gonna happen. But I had told them everything. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to partying. I didn't know that there was a solution to do that though at the time. So now I, my mom fast forward to Wednesday, I'm now on day five of sobriety. I went back to work on Tuesday, by the way, which was another thing on Tuesday, I go back to work and nobody even really asked me. They're like, where are, where you been? Where were you all weekend? And it was kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'm not that important. I thought it was, (laughs) but it wasn't. So, you know, we just think we're, you know, we're the center of our own universe and So I go to, so now I, now fast forward to Wednesday and I, I go meet my mom and I called my attorney. And he's like, when I called my attorney, Jeff, he saw my number come up and he's like, and it was Memorial Day weekend, I called him on Sunday. And he's like, oh no. I'm like, yep. He's like, all right, come see me on Wednesday. So I go see him Wednesday at five o'clock. I've got my mom and my best friend Andy in in, in the car with me. We're going to drive to, to Jeff to see Jeff, my attorney. And I'm there to tell him everything and see what he can do or not do. My court date is set for July 6th. This is May 30th of 2018. I'm day five of sobriety. I have no clue what I'm doing. I tell him everything, but like i have done. And I, you know, whatever. And he's, and he's and he's like, you told the cop? You told him that? you. you like what, like, you know, and any attorneys, like, dude, shut up, like, stop, like, shut up, which is why, like, it is so counterintuitive in today's world to just like, no, don't say the truth. But I, one of the things that I preach constantly is tell the truth. It's better. It's free. It is, you know, the truth can set you free. And I mean that anyways. So I told him everything. And I, I was like, this is what I did. I don't know if it's going to help or hurt. He's like, well, I don't think it's going to hurt help you, but whatever. I guess we got to roll with it. Like, and so anyways, I signed the retainer. I get him going and he's like hey dude remember on your first two DUIs that you needed to go to some AA meetings to like appease the judge and i was like yeah i went to like one AA meeting on each one and i signed the cards myself and i BS my way through it and like i didn't actually i was never an alcoholic you know i had my friends sign and whatever and he's like well you should probably go and maybe don't have your friends sign and maybe just listen whatever and i'm like yeah but okay so he gives me some cards to like get him signed at AA meetings mm-hmm. and i remember leaving his office and we're walking back to my car and my best friend Andy who i don't want to say i owe my life to but pretty close to it. He, he pulls me and he's like, dude. And my mom kept like walking up ahead of us. And he's like, dude, I've known you for at this time, 20, we were best friends since April of 98. So 20 years, I've known you for 20 years and I've never, I don't give you directions, but this one I'm telling you, you need to go to an AA meeting and you need to go every single day. And he's not an alcoholic at all. Like not even a little bit. The guy drinks like a beer a year, like nothing, but he's like, you need to go to an AA meeting and you need to go every single day. And I'm like, why? He's like, because you do. I don't know why, just do it. And I'm like, okay. And he's never given me direction like that. And frankly, I don't know why he would say that. I still don't know, but he said it. So the next day I found an AA meeting near me and I went and I walked in. Then I remember walking into an AA meeting in Tustin, California, a 5.30 meeting called Rush Hour. And I remember I walked in and it was just like, I knew nobody, but I walked in. I was just with myself and I'm listening to people speak and it's like, you know, it's like a 30-year-old, a 20-year-old, a woman, a man, a you know, a black guy, a white guy, a janitor, a CEO, a, a golfer, an athlete. A, you know, it all walks of life, a mother, a son, a daughter, whatever. It didn't matter. Grandma, it didn't matter. Everybody's in there. And they're like, I did this, and 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 I did this. And they're all smiling. And I'm like, this is crazy. Why are you guys happy about that? And they're like, and I couldn't figure out what the common denominator was until after he'd shared. They're like, Susie alcoholic, Bill alcoholic, Steve alcoholic, Jerry alcoholic. And I remember thinking to myself, I've done that. I've done that.'" I've done that. I've done that. I did that last week. I'm doing that next week. Okay. And then I was like, and I was like, what's the common denominator?" here? I guess. Okay. Well, the shoe fits. And in that moment, everything that I never want to be with my dad, I was able to identify, which is why I think the greatest three words in Alcoholics Anonymous are, yeah, me too. In other words, yep. you tell your story and I just say, oh yeah, me too. And so and that and so when I heard that I was like wow I'm an alcoholic and so for me identification was massively easy I knew I had a problem I, my, my best thinking put me in that seat that day 6 days of sobriety with a court date of July 6th and that was my first day meeting and I knew here's what the only thing I remember is what Andy said keep coming back or you know not keep coming back but go every day and then when yeah. I left they were like keep coming back and I was like did they talk to Andy <laughs> did they know yeah how did they know how did they know to tell me to keep coming back I thought it was just you know you can't just get your degree in one day so anyways um, I came back the next day and net net on July 6th when I went to my court date I had 42 days of sobriety I was it was a Friday I had 42 days of sobriety and I had been going to AA meetings for 37 of those days and in 37 days I went to 77 AA meetings and I remember I was I was in the program I had a sponsor I had You know, all of the, I I was, I was, I was in and there was one Saturday. I remember, I think it's one of your questions we'll talk about, but there was one Saturday when I wanted to drink so bad and I wasn't sentenced yet. So I technically could have, I was 30 years old. I was legal. I could have done whatever I wanted to. And I wanted to drink so bad, but yet I didn't do it. And I went to five AA meetings in one day just so I wouldn't drink. And that was kind of a big turning point for me. So anyways, I can talk about my actual court appearance, which is another crazy story. When I got to court, what happened, how God was in the middle of that. But through all of that, my mom saw my actions and she started. And so when I went into my court program that I would eventually get into, my mom sacrificed everything to drive me to my court dates, to take everything. And we just started having like AA meetings in the car. And she's like, Mike, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm like, "Then just listen. It's a speaker meeting. I'll talk. Like, it just I would just tell her everything and she would just be like, oh, Michael, where did I go wrong? Like, what? And I was like, mom, you did nothing. I'm here, I love you, like, and anyways, our relationship, just whatever, and it blossomed in the truth. And you have a normie, my mom is, my mom can read a book and hang out and just be by herself and no problem and the most easygoing person, nothing bothers her ever, and then you have this type A, gregarious, zealous, arrogant, charismatic, alcoholic, ah! and yet she's my mom, the only way we have a relationship is through truth and through Christ, and that was it. And that built that, that through that whole year when I was in the court program that I was in. She drove me to and from court dates, probation officers, drug testing, everything that I did, and, uh, and our relationship took off. And so, if um, you saw, uh, and part of my other story, we'll talk about other addictions, but um, I ended up getting sober or abstinent from gambling in November of 2020. And in 2021, I had the best year of my career. And uh, if I wouldn't have got, stopped gambling, I, um, my, I made more money than I ever had, but my bets would have just gotten bigger, but God right. did for me what I could do my, for myself in that instance. And so I got absent from gambling in November of 2020 and all of the money that I made in 2021, at that point, my brother had decided to move from Orange County to, to, to Franklin, Tennessee. And my mom was like, Mike, I don't know what to do. And at this time I'm three and a half years sober, or whatever I am. She's like, I don't know what to do. You're here, but your brother's there. And, and they have their daughter, my niece, who's my world. What do I do? And I'm like, mom, I'm 34. I'm raised. Like you could go. I got dressed all by myself today. Like we're okay. And so I remember telling, Like and so, and, and I was like, how am I ever going to repay my mom? And I had all this money saved up. And I said, you know what, this is my opportunity. So I bought my mom a house in, uh, in Franklin, Tennessee, so she could, live out her years there and be near my niece and, and her youngest son, my brother. And I could go, you know, I was sing, single, still single, and I could go anywhere and meet them at the time. And it was my opportunity to give back to my mom, you know, what, what the Lord had given to me, like, it, I, you know, what, the, where my life has come from, from where it was to where it is now, like the only, the only, the only possible possible reciprocation of that is to give away and be, be grateful and thankful. And that's how I did that. And my relationship with my mom is as better as best as it's ever been. If I had, a, if you could do a best woman at a wedding, she would be it.
1: I love that so much. Cause the opportunity for you guys to get to know each other in that way of the driving back and forth and doing all those things, but also you know, becoming abstinent from gambling right before you start making more money than you'd ever made. And then you go and invest it in something that's truly meaningful, like legacy type stuff, instead of throwing it away at a table or however gambling works. But like, you know, and and it's selfless too. in in the way of like wanting her to live out her years and be close to your, it's just, I love, I love that kind of stuff because it's so Heartwarming and we I shouldn't say we, I speak for myself, but I put my family through a lot. And there's mm-hmm. this feeling of like, how am I ever gonna make that okay? Right. We make amends, we we show up differently. There's a lot of ways that we can repair it, but there's always gonna be a part of me um that wishes I could do more. And so, like when you get to do a grand gesture like that, I think it's just like, I mean, it's redemption, you know, that's that's so incredible. And she deserves the it.
0: Yeah. And, and, and one, one of the, the, the kind of key kickers in that story is my mom came to my court date and I remember getting to my court date. And at the time she's proud of me. She's Mikey 42 days sober. Like that's great. Like she doesn't know one day at a time. She just knows, Hey, he's not drinking. This is good. He's the most honest we've ever seen. We got his personality back. We got the old Mikey bag, whatever. Like that's what she knew. So she was just happy about that. But she was obviously worried about me going away to jail. So she comes to the court date and it's, I've got my sponsor there, my grand sponsor and my mom and my best friend, Andy's mom was there as well. Um, so they're there, and, and 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 I'm sitting there, and I'm in a nice suit. And at the time, I was fat as all get out because I ate a bunch. But anyways, I thought it looked all right. But I uh, but this this super dapper looking guy, nice suit, and everything. He comes up, and he's like, "Are you Mike Anderson?" I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, "Here's your offer." And I didn't know what time, but he was at the a DA, and he gives me this offer, and it was like 330 days in jail, like three months of like community service, um, like drug and alcohol rehab. I mean, he just like threw it through the book at me, and like this, like basically because of that third DUI thing, right? That's a big deal. And I was like, oh my God. And I called. And so my attorney wasn't there yet. He was like running with Billy, and I called him, Jeff, hey dude, are you coming? What do I do? He's like, don't do anything. Don't move, don't sleep, don't breathe. Like just wait till I get there. He comes, we go to, the, we're in the courtroom and now, and we're, we're filing and this is Friday morning, July 6th. I remember it vividly. There's a guy in front of me, and they're calling him by alphabetical I'm Anderson. I think they called Alvarez or whatever they call. They call the guy in front of me. And I remember this. Oh, I remember this. They call the guy's case in front of me. And this guy, the judge is like, okay, Mr. Whatever, I see you're on a second DUI. And he's because he's on a second one, I'm on a third. And he's like, Your case, your DUI, your arrest was in January of this year. Mine was in May. This is now July. So he's like, You've been continuing your case. Why have you done that? And and the guy's like, I want to continue it again, Your Honor. And this is right before they call my case. And the judge is like, I don't know why we should do this. He's like, Well, I started, I started figuring out they got a problem and I and I, I've been going to some recover, I've been doing recovery and whatever. And the judge's like, Oh, tell me about that. He kind of perks up. And the guy is like, uh, do you have any proof that you went to meetings? He's like, Yeah, I do. So he hands it to the bailiff. The bailiff hands it to the judge. And the and the judge looks at him and goes, You went to one meeting in six months? And he says, Forget it. He like bangs his gavel and he that guy gets taken away in handcuffs right there. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, that's it, see you later, capital punishment, I'm done, like they're gonna burn me at the stake, I'm gonna get stoned, whatever. Like it's gonna be, you know, just a line of fire, I don't know what's gonna happen, like this is it, like 42 days of sober, I'm out. So that was what I was thinking. So they call me up there, my attorney's standing next to me, I got me, my attorney, and the DA, we're all standing up there, we're facing the judge, and the judge goes, he's looking at my my record, and he's looking at the DA's offer, and he's like, he's just going through it, he's like, whoa, Mr. Anderson, looks like uh, somebody likes to have some fun. I'm like, yeah, you're all right, <laughs> I definitely do." But it's not that fun anymore. And he's like, What do you mean? And I'm like, And he's going through my jacket. And he's like, Three, you know, he sees two DUIs already, seven or eight drunken publics. He's like, It's, you know, just dude, is, you got a problem. I'm like, Well, Your Honor, as you can tell, when I drink, I can't stop. He's like, Okay. He's like, What do you have to say about that? And I'm like, Well, I've realized that I'm an alcoholic and that, uh, you know, I, the only way for me to ever live a life that I could possibly be proud of is that I have to stay sober. That's the only possible way. like okay you know what 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 do you how do you know that i'm like well behind me are my my sponsor my grand sponsor you know i've been working with steps and my attorney at this time is thinking i'm full of it like i just got two buddies because he doesn't even know that i'm really sober like he's kind of like what is it you know whatever because i bs my way through the first two and so anyways so he's like do you have any proof he went to aa and i gave him the cards and he i give him the cards and it's every card has 10 signatures so i gave him seven and a half cards for 77 meetings Mm -hmm. and he's like you went to 77 meetings in 37 days? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why? And I was like, because I really wanted to drink and I knew, I just knew that I couldn't. And he's like, okay. And he's like, and he looks at the DA and he, 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 whatever. And he calls them, like, he's like Chambers, he calls them back, they like went back away. And I'm standing up in open court, like just looking around, like, is this where they just pull out a gun and end it? Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. And I'm I'm standing there, it felt like forever. And they finally come back and my attorney kind of looks at me and goes, hey dude, are you you serious about the sobriety thing? And I go, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I plan on it. Like, you know, like, is this for real? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, like, okay, just say yes to everything the judge asks you. I'm like, okay. So he's like, judge goes, Mr. Anderson, are you an alcoholic? Yes. Do you want to keep your job? Yes. Do you believe you can stay sober? Yes. I'm like, okay. And And he goes, you're in the DUI court program, which means I can keep my job, which means I don't have to go to jail. So he rejects the DA's plea. He puts me in that program. I end up doing that program for a year. I stay sober. I get drug and alcohol tested. My mom drove me to and from all of that stuff. That's where our relationship really took off. Like they could have thrown me in jail and thrown away the key. And I don't know if I would have stayed sober, but they didn't. And God gave me that second chance. And so, you know, if God's gift to me was sobriety, the only thing I can do is give back to him by what I've done. And so, and what I continue to do, which is give back. Because I, I, there's no way I can keep what I've been given. There's no way. And so, and that's, that's kind of where our relationship took off and that's where I'm at. So I know I'm babbling, but that's kind of the story.
1: I love it. And it it makes me feel a little bit emotional every time someone tells stories like that of how, um, how we show up for each other in the program because people getting sick, I'm sorry, I'm going to start crying, but like losing parents or losing people we love or people getting married and having babies or people needing someone to vouch for them in court, like, you know how people really, really show up for each other. And, you know, my drinking and using friends, like, of course, they were nowhere to be found when I really needed something. And um I don't know, it's just, it's heartwarming that your sponsor and your grand sponsor, and you're so new in recovery and that they're going to come, you know, have your back. And I don't know, that always just touches me because yeah. I was so selfish in my, <clears throat> in my addiction and the things we will do for each other because we know how hard it is, um, especially what when is someone, that? And they just need someone to be like, I believe in you. You can do this. You're not alone. You know what I mean? Like, that's all we need to hear. We need somebody to say, I hear what you're saying. I'm not judging you. You're not a bad person. You're sick. We're going to help you get well. Like, it's just because the outside world, be it cops, judges, regular people, therapists, doctors, whatever family, you know, they're looking at you like you're so capable and smart and successful in all these other areas of your life. Like, why can't you just get it together? What is wrong mm. with you? Like, stop. And you feel judged, even though they're coming from a good place and they love you and they want to help you. It feels judgy because they don't understand. Yeah. So then when you walk into a room where people are like, uh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like, these are my people. Yeah. Um, and not only that, they don't just say it. They actually show up. We show totally. up each other in real life. And it's, It's
0: touching. The greatest, what I've heard it, I think my sponsor said it, but somebody said it, but I think I've heard it said that the greatest gift we give to those who love us is for them to not have to worry about us anymore.
1: That's right. Yep. It's such a big, it's such a big deal. Okay. So when was the last time you thought about drinking and how did you, you know, how do you get out of it? Whether it's because I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. If you've been sober for two days or 25 years, the thought is going to come. It's going mm-hmm. to come, and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean you're not working a strong program, or that your faith isn't whatever. It's just part of how we're wired. And so, what do you do? Let's say, let's say you can't get to a meeting right away, or anyways, I'm not going to set conditions on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Last time you had um, a craving, and like how do you just go like, excuse me, hello, no?
0: Well, I mean, I've had cravings. I mean, I'm an alcoholic, so craving is that's like saying you know, it's, like, it's just when did I wash my hair last? It's just it just um, is. <laughs> Yeah. At this point, it's just normal. Like It is what it is. I don't really question why I have it. I just do. Um, yep. But the last time when it was visceral and I wanted to and I needed to and it was like I couldn't do anything. I remember I had like 56 days of sobriety or something. This is like two weeks after. And mind you, when I had my court date, I still had to do like I had to do this like therapy, not like this, this plan thing to get in this program. Like I had to get approved to get in the program. The judge suggested it and I had to get approved. So, anyways, this is and this is crazy how this all worked out. It was a Friday, and I remember in my company, I was fifty some odd days sober, about eight weeks, two two months in, and I had just closed like a deal that like put us over the like the top of that week. And our company said, "Hey, we're gonna buy you guys a, a party bus from to go from the Irvine office to an Angel game." And I remember. Oh my God. And I was like, and everybody was like, and everybody's wanting to party. They're going to go get bottles. They're going to change. They're going to whatever. And, and you know, in my company, you know, we have, we've got everybody's party and we've got beautiful girls. We've got the whole thing. And it's just like, and, and, and for that for Mike Anderson, that was like where I thrived. Like that was my, that was my mecca. That was my zone. I'm 55 days sober. We just qualified. It was a deal that I think I did that got us over that hump. And I remember like they're going to be on that bus. They're going to be partying. Like I earned that. Like, this is like, I should be on that bus. I'm the man. Like my ego took over. My sponsor always says your ego is not your ego. So I'm always reminded of that. But, um, but anyway, so I called, so I'm, I'm sitting there and they're starting to drink. It's like four 30 on a Friday. And I called my sponsor and uh, Dave. Um, and I called Dave and he's like, he's like, he's like, dude, get your, you know what to a meeting. So I just basically I pushed my chair and I kinda Irish goodbye out of the office and I, I remember got in my car and I drove from the office to an AA meeting at like a hundred miles an hour in the carpool lane by myself, breaking the law like an idiot. I don't condone that. But I did, and I got to the meeting and I got there a little bit early, it started at five thirty, and I was like you know, and I had already been to a six AM meeting that morning because at this time my home group was a six AM group, and I had shared about this coming potential like party that we may have because I wanted to take the power out of it, but the power wasn't gone, and so I had to go to a second meeting that night, and I got to this meeting and I was just like. And they, they finally opened it up a sharing and I started banging on the table. I was like, I want to share. And they're like, all right, Mike, go ahead. And I'm like, this is BS. I hate this program. You guys are the ones that are alcoholics. I hate that I have your disease. This is bull, like whatever. I'm, I'm losing it. I'm hitting the table. I'm like 55 days sober, pissed off at the world that I have to I have to be stuck with this disease and I'm just mad and I bit and whatever. And then after I get done like spewing for five minutes, everyone's just like, you're right where you're supposed to be. You're right where you're supposed to be. And they're just like, oh, this is great. Like, good job, Mike. We're let it out. I'm just like, you guys suck, right? Like, this is terrible. Check this out. Two weeks later, I'm clinging into my thing. And the guy that's evaluating me, which is a guy that has 18 years of sobriety, never goes to that AA. Rarely goes to that AA meeting. He was in that meeting and heard me say that. He's like, you're the guy that was banging on the table two weeks ago. You are a candidate for a program. Good job not drinking that night. And then he let me into the program. If yeah. I hadn't shared that, done my sponsor did, crazy, crazy. Again, another thing, like you can't write this stuff, but it's just, you know, whatever. So that was the last time. But now you're asking me, what do I do when I get the urges? It's real simple. When I drink, I can't stop. I recognize that there's an outside force that has to happen. I gotta get arrested. A girl's gotta slap me. I gotta get, you know, kicked out of a bar. I gotta end up on the street. Something's gotta happen, right? I can't stop on my own. I, I never have been able to. So rather than, you know, my sponsor says. If a hundred percent of people who don't drink can't get drunk, so I don't do it. But what do I do if I'm ever desiring to do it? I just play the take through. Where do I end up? Jails, institutions and death. Just not worth it to me. My life is way too good. I'm not willing to trade it for anything. That's what I do. I play the take through. That's the tool I use.
1: I love that. I love it. It's straightforward and it's, it's, you know, it it works. It works if we're being honest with ourselves, right? If we're able to have that recall and say, um, what really happens? Because for me, when I was in and out of the rooms, I remember it would, my mind would just show me the highlight reel, right? It would show me the part of the movie that was awesome. Uh, It left off, you know, the rest. And so I was like, and I didn't have that um, pause when agitated. I didn't have that tool. I didn't understand that there was the thought and then there was the action and there was no time in between. There was absolutely no buffer. If I wanted to do Mm -hmm. it, I was going to do it. And I didn't care what the consequences were because I'm gonna and, and then later, it was like there, <clears throat> that time between the thought and the action grew to where whether I do the serenity prayer, I call my sponsor, I call another woman in recovery, I go do a meeting, like I hit my knees or whatever. There's a million things we can do. But it built that time to where when the thought would come, um, you know, it's... But everybody... It's cool when I talk to people because they have different tools they use. They have different... Somebody says, mm-hmm. play the tape all the way through, or I say the serenity prayer, or I do this or I do that. Um, so I love that. But... So, okay, you're you're like a pretty hardcore, intense guy, which most of us, yes. you know, a lot of us, that's kind of our thing. So what do you do to blow off steam and have fun now? What's your, you know, and what do you do? Because for me, drinking was, I worked hard. I deserve it. Um, it was all these things, right? I'm stressed out. I need to blow off steam. I'm going on vacation. Of course, I'm going to get drunk. Why else do people go on vacation? That was, it was always centered around that. And then having to unlearn that fun and alcohol are synonymous but then also like well what are what are the other things I can do that are genuinely fun so what do you do for fun
0: so for fun um uh as of late um I've really I mean people are gonna probably laugh but like I really I really dove into my faith massively I spent a lot of time doing a lot of stuff with my faith in my church Um, that's the most my faith I'll say this and this is a tough thing to say as an addict, but sobriety used to be my number one thing in my life. And then it was my faith and now it's faith and then sobriety, then my family, then my career. Like, and so my faith is number one. So advancing the kingdom of God, that's that's what I want to do most. First and foremost, as far as like fun, just an activity. I love going to the gym. I've lost in the last, um, I don't know. I want to say about a year, 10 months to a year. I've lost 58 pounds. Um, just focusing on doing eating right. I used to, you know, I would eat like three steaks on like a date. Like, that's a problem. I shouldn't be eating that many steaks. Like, and so I, I kind of just learned to temper my appetite through the gym. I'm a, I love golf. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, my best friend, Andy, I kind of, kind of own this. He got me into chess. So I enjoy uh, playing a good game of chess. Um, yes. and so that, that's what I do. And then, um, you know, my family is, 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 means the world to me. Um, but like I would be lying that at 35, you know, single net or, um, You know, single, never married, no kids. Um, I I, I look for that, and I I would love to to meet a lady at some point. But like, I will. I'd rather defer that to God and let God handle that, since He's handled everything else perfectly. I'd rather Him just deal with it, and she'll come when she comes. But other than that, I just focus on uh, my faith, uh, my health, and my my, my sobriety, and then you know, everything else seems to fall into place if I just maintain those three things. So that's kind of me. I
1: love that. I love it. Chess, working out. This is a big one in the program, resentment, right? And number one offender, blah, blah, blah. We know how dangerous that can be, especially when they seem small or trivial or we let them build up. So my question to you is um, specifically what you do when a resentment pops up, whether it's brand new in the moment or it's an old one that coughs back up, but like what's your, besides working a step on it and doing all the things, but in the moment, do you know what I mean? Do you have a tool yeah. or a prayer or something that you do to kind of, not latch on, right? Because we have that choice in that moment. We can either latch on to that story and just like go nuts with it and just really piss ourselves off or we can, you know, try to go another direction. Yeah. What, what do you do?
0: So, I mean, pro, in the program, it's like, oh, we, we got to pray for those we have resentments towards. If somebody kind of pisses me off, I really have a hard time praying that like they don't get hit by a truck or whatever. Like, it's kind of like, it's a hard thing. And, and, that, and resentments are... They're true. They're real. And the and this is, I don't know if it's tacky or this is what I do, but I'm a very, um, like I'm I'm not a friction guy, but I'm very like, this is what I do. This is how I do it. This is how I operate. Like kind of take it or leave it. And it's, I don't mean to be like a jerk about it, but that not everybody's like that. And it was a revolutionary. It was revolutionary when I realized the whole world doesn't revolve around me. That's crazy. But anyways, once I figured that out, then I realized that if that's true, then I definitely have, people have to have resentments towards me. What would I do if every single person that had a resentment towards me never spoke to me again? And I just like, okay, well, I would have no friends. And so I would have nobody in my life. And I kind of play that through. Um, The other thing that I do is I call, um, I try to call somebody whether in the program or out of the program and I just check in on them and generally what you'll find is that, by the way, that's a lost skill in today's world. People don't check on each other anymore. Nobody. It's a very rare thing I've noticed, but I just called to check in on somebody. And what I found is that when they start telling me about what's going on with them, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not that mad at that person because they cut me off or I'm not whatever. So uh, generally, if I take myself out of the resentment and I realize that I could easily, they could easily just, be just be just as resentful to me at me, um, there's that. The other thing I do is my rule is I have the 72 hour rule. I never let 72 hours go by without not talking to that person because the resentment grows, it grows and it grows and it grows. And then all of a sudden you'll be mad at somebody for six months. You don't even remember what you were really mad about, but you're not even talking to them because now you can't talk to them because you got to stick to your resentment. Like that is a problem. And so I don't let 72 hours go by. If there's an issue, we talk about it. Sometimes people even get annoyed because I do like a 10 minute rule where I'm like, Hey, we got to talk about this now. And they're like, give me like, I gotta go to the bathroom or whatever, but like, that's the idea That's like, you know, um, but like, you get my point, I don't let time pass. So I call somebody else see how they're doing. And then I usually handle it head on. And what I found is that that pretty much works. The other thing too, is I talk about recovery to everyone who will listen. I don't like, you could be, you know, whatever. And then when I do that, they're like, okay, like I understand I'm not you. So, and they, and I understand I'm not you. So it's kind of like, let's talk about this. And so um, it's just, it's just been a lot easier. And a lot of and other things, too, is what I've noticed is my level of resentment goes way down when my level of acceptance goes way up. And so if big, the page 417 of the big book says that nothing in God's world happens by happened to my mistake, and if that's true, then it's as it's supposed to be. So then what am I like? This is already, yeah, This is already supposed to be the way it is. So maybe I'm the one that's being that I have to be worked on here to work on these resentments. So anyways, right. just a thought.
1: No, I love that. I love 552, having to do 552 on somebody for a couple of weeks or however long it takes. I love 417 and how, you know, we're, we're taught that that my serenity and expectations are inversely proportional, right? Like, I tend to have very high expectations of myself, which means I put those expectations on other people. Well, guess what? Everyone isn't high-strung, type A, crazy yeah. lady. Like, I And so those expectations, it's just like let that people, let that person do what they need to do. But also I love your I love that insight about 72 hours, like not letting that time go by because <clears throat> if you're angry or you feel hurt or fearful or whatever, my mind can have a tendency to scan the environment for anything that kind of feeds that resentment, which is to your point, it grows and it grows really fast. And then yeah. half of the story isn't even true. It's just stuff that was like floating around in my head or i totally. try to connect the dots and create problems where there really aren't any <clears throat> but then when you call that person or go have coffee with them and then all of a sudden you're like i'm not mad at i'm not mm-hmm. mad at this person what is my what is my deal you know
0: so and one of the things that i've realized about resentment is 98 99% of the time what i'm resentful about there it was never intentional and when it's when you realize if you talk to them and you realize that they didn't mean to do it that way or whatever it's kind of like but I'm over here like plotting their death or whatever I'm doing. And it's like, you know, like just talk about it. So, um, I feel like, uh, the ability to confront things, um, and on the flip side, if somebody has resentment towards me, what I've really tried to do is own it and say, I'm really sorry. Like account, like step 10 has just been a lifesaver for me, which is, you know, we were wrong. We probably admitted it. And I don't even, I don't even care if I believe I'm wrong or if I'm not, whatever. It just doesn't matter. It's I'm sorry. And I, you know, and I feel that that has created relationships that are deeper than they've ever been, but with less people but oh, deeper than they've ever been because some people don't want to hear it which is fine
1: but no, that's yeah. you know so. no that's huge anyway. that's yeah. huge and I, I i really i really love that and i love this idea of you know when you said i don't even cuz My ego used to, no, I'm right. I'm right. I don't care if it costs me this friendship. Like I'm right. And I'm not going to, I don't care. But now I don't care. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? I don't even care if I still believe that I'm right. It doesn't matter. If I made you feel bad, I'm sorry for that. That was not my intention. And if I'm going through the day making everything about me, then of course, I'm going to think that person's comment was like about me or directed at me or being done to me. Right. As opposed to like, that's just that person doing what they do. Um, And I think too, something that my sponsor and I've heard other people say, but adding just like me to the end of, uh, you know, so if I'm looking at somebody, I'm like, "Ah, that person's being, you know, just like me, I have been selfish. I have cut people off in traffic. I've been insensitive. I have, I have done all of that stuff in recovery and in my addiction. Mm -hmm. And so who am I? look at somebody and and have that judgment right if i'm being honest with myself and but the cool thing is in recovery we have tools right we can go make an amends we can clean up our side of the street immediately and and change Mm -hmm. our behavior whereas before when i screwed someone over i just like avoided them (laughs) you know there's freedom
0: one of the things i found out was when i went to my first AA meeting there was a big i found this out later but there was a big resentment issue going on within that meeting And everybody had tried to like, they very well could have not come to that meeting. But they were all there. And I often wonder what if I would have went to my first day of meeting and nobody was there? What would have happened? Like, I don't know. Would I have gone back? I don't know. Would I have, I I don't know. And so it's, we so focus on it's between me and Amanda or me and Steve or me and whatever. But it's like other people are watching. And 99%, I always say this. Uh, Preach or priest sobriety. Use the big book if necessary. Like, just it should be your actions that they can see, and that's like that's what I want. You know what I yes.
1: mean? And so- not promotion. No, I I totally get that. And I've in a women's group that I was my home group in Austin uh, that I was part of for a really long time. We had some issues and we had to have a group conscience and we had to actually work an inventory as a group. And it was really difficult because there are a lot of big personalities and meetings, you know, and we had a lot of egos and we're jockeying for position and this and that, but it's like, Hey man, this is our rescue boat. So uh, do we really want to burn this down and sink all, not only all of ourselves, but more importantly, the newcomers that are looking for, a, uh, you know, a safety mm-hmm. line. And it, it was hard. And my tendency back in the day was to walk away. I just, if something upset me or it was going to have to, re- it was going to require too much conflict mm-hmm. resolution on my part or God forbid humility. Um, no, mm-hmm. thank you. I'll just, I'll, I will just i got to go. Uh, but now it's like, no, it's worth it. It's worth working through it. It's worth worth being uncomfortable looking at my part. Um, I don't like it. I still don't like it, but I'll do it because my sobriety is worth it. And ultimately okay. a newcomer has got to have a safe place to be, you yes. know? Um, Okay. So I, you know, and, and this isn't true for everybody, but I just want to ask you this question. So for me and a lot of other people, initially at first, we tend to replace addictions. I think it's just a natural thing. Right. And, um, a lot of times, you know, we quit drinking. So then this next thing is the magic bullet, whether it's like working too many hours or even working out too much or getting obsessive about our eating or shopping or sex or you know netflix or whatever it is for different people did you go through that process in your early recovery um or not so much because it sounds like you had alcohol drugs and gambling um so, so well, there's a lot so, going yeah
0: so i wouldn't say that um <laughs> i had alcohol drugs and gambling Gambling was always a thing that I did when I was drunk and high. And so I didn't really do that. I didn't do a lot of gambling sober. It just wasn't a big thing that I did. I was drunk and high a lot, but that's why I did a lot of gambling, but it was never that. And I asked my sponsor, should I look at that too? And in the beginning, it was just like, hey, focus on the addiction that's going to kill you first. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to die if I make a bet. And so, you know, whatever. So I kind of, I, I focused on that. But as I recovered, as I, you know, from alcohol and drugs and remained sober from that, um, you know, I had in my twenties, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I was a saint. I slept around. I did a lot of stuff I'm not proud of, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I got, um I remember when I first came in the program, they were like, "Hey, no major change in your first 12 months." Which, as I heard, it was like, you know, don't if you're in a relationship, don't get out of it. If you're not in one, don't get into one. Don't move. If you have a job, don't quit. If you don't have a job, don't get one. Like, just that you it, it's already a massive change to not do, like that's what I heard, right? And so, um so I kind of took that to heart, and I actually took it to heart for like two and a half, three years, I didn't do any dating. Like, I was just like, if that's a woman, I'm like, nope, I'm looking over here. Like, it was just whatever. Anyways, I took it, like, overly to the problem where people are like, yo, dude, you ever going to get a girlfriend? I'm like, I don't know. But anyways, um, and so so about when COVID hit, um, and I would say a little bit before when COVID hit, but about two years into sobriety, um, because I got sober in May of 2018, COVID hit in March of 2020. Yeah, So I'm, I'm about a year and a half into sobriety. And I started realizing that I would... Weekends, I was really starting to look forward to so I could go to the casino. So I would go to my 6 a.m. meeting on Saturday. I was, I was, I was, you know, went to meeting every day. I never missed. And I would go to, and then I would go to the casino after. And I would take, you know, a, a significant amount of money. And, and I, you know, at time I would take five, 10 grand, whatever it was. And so I would do that. And um, I, I gambled a bunch. And so, um, you know, when I, I, I could go on and on, but gambling took over, COVID hit, casinos closed. And I knew I had a problem when I, Found a guy on Facebook that I pl- had seen at a poker game once at a casino. I added him and then I messaged him and said, Do you know any poker games during COVID? And I went and started going to these underground poker games in LA. Um, and I would be driving on the freeway when I'm supposed to be working and going, you know, and I would play in these games. And that it became like my God, I played till three or four in the morning, and I drive home. Now I wasn't drinking or using, so I was still a great ambassador for AA, whatever that means. Which is kind of funny because there's like there was like seven or eight people at that poker table that were in AA. It was like, are we 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 should turn this into a GME? And so, um, so anyways, fast forward to uh, November of 2020. Um, the way that Gamblers Anonymous works is it's the first meeting after your last bet is your abstinence date. So my absent date is November 28th of 2020. Uh, my last bet was November 26th, but anyways, I, um, so I, I went to a, a casino and, and I mean, that's a whole different story, but my my sponsor, my, my AA sponsor was finally like, Hey, you should probably go to a GA meeting because there's probably something there. And I was like, I had thought about it, but I didn't really, whatever, because I was making good money and I could, I could sustain my lifestyle with it. I was never going into debt. I didn't have a lot of money, but I was never going into debt. And a guy that's doing as well as I was doing, I should have had way more than I had, um, and so I didn't have... I had not much. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go into figures because of whatever, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. And I was like, if I don't stop, this is going to get worse because... And so I walked into a GA meeting and they, they were like, hey, here's 20 questions. Maybe, maybe you're not a compulsive gambler. Of course, they knew the whole time it was. And so they're like, hey, if you answer yes to 7 of these, you're a compulsive gambler. I think I answered yes to like 38 out of 20 or whatever it was. So I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I guess I'm an addict. So from that day on, I realized, and I thought, I was like, why are you working with Steps in AA? Can I just not work with Steps? And they were like, uh, your credits don't transfer, pal. So I had to do the Steps again, get a new sponsor, the whole thing. But I've been in, now I'm in both programs. And like I said, I didn't know that God, this is, this is wild too. And I'll share this. Biblically, the Bible talks about tithing and the Bible says, bring your tithing and offerings to the storehouse and I will bless you back tenfold. In other words, it's, it's kind of an area where the Bible says that you can test God. If you give God, you know, whatever, he'll take care of you. Now, what that means, I don't know if he's going to give you money back if he's going to take care of you or whatever. I don't know. But I, my, my thing was, I started tithing. I started going to church about two weeks after I got sober, but I just went a couple of times. I didn't go much. And the first service, service, sermon that they said was about tithing. And I was like, wait, if I tithe, that will give God a chance to pay me back when I'm gambling. So I started tithing like consistently. And I haven't missed. And that was my rationale. I'm telling you, true, true story. And so I started tithing and I finally, and then, and I would, oh, and I would win or I'd lose or whatever. And I'd be like, when I won, I'd be like, God, you're getting a little bit of this. When I lose, I'd be like, where were you on that one? Like whatever. And so like, that was my kind of relationship. And so I finally get to from gambling. And then God's like, Hey, moron, I've been here the whole time. You need to turn it all over. Not some of it over, not part of it over everything. You're all in or you're not in. And Uh, there's a parable and story I can share with you in a little bit when you ask me my question about my faith, but um, it's, you're all in. And so when that happened, it was crazy. Then the next year I made three times what I've ever made before, bought my mom the house. And all I know is that if I wouldn't have stopped gambling, all that money would have went to the blackjack table versus into the house that my mom now sits in. So um, my, my, my story is a forever story about God. If God wants your heart, he's not going to stop until he gets it. I
1: love that. And I think It's, uh, it's hard to give up things or, um, not replace that obsession, right? It's almost like it will morph, it will just keep morphing. And then it may not be the same level of consequences as drinking and drugs and this and that, but like, there are those, it's a pattern. It's a pattern that's Mm -hmm. very recognizable to us. And we start like you were saying, driving around or doing this and that, and you start feeling like this feels very familiar, like not in a good way. Yeah. Um, but having that yeah. faith to do something that's, you know, um, I don't know. I, I like, I like your faith as your, as your, um, kind of central theme, right? Like it comes even before recovery, which, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, anything you put after your recovery is going to go away. But so what's the number one, most important thing you do for yourself to stay on the beam every single day? Like what's the thing that you never skip besides like a meeting or whatever?
0: Um, so it's real. It's, it's real. For, for me, stand the beam is. <laughs> it's it's very simple. Um, I make sure I talk to somebody that is struggling, and somebody that is has made it through. So I talk to like one like both sides of the coin. Either like a new. I talk to a newcomer, and I talk to somebody with more sobriety than me. That is, I don't want to say achieved more, but like has kind of come out of the darkness of whatever. And I talk to those two people just so I can juxtapose in my mind. I never want to be there, and I still want to be there. And I'm never going to get there if I go to there. So I, I do that every day. Um, and also, too, um, you know, people that are often tempted uh, in situations, they're probably putting themselves in situations they shouldn't be in. Um, I'm not around alcohol a lot. I'm just not. I don't, you know, I don't go hang out at bars to prove that I can do it or whatever. Like, I don't. It's just not my thing. Um, and so uh, staying on the beam, it, 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 I'm such a, I'm such an I don't want to say eternal minded. Maybe I am eternal minded, but like I'm such, you know, I won't step over, you know, a nick, or I won't step over a quarter today when, I, or sorry, I won't step over a nickel today when I have a quarter tomorrow. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna focus on the future and, and keep going forward, and like that kind of mentality is just the thing of I'm never willing to trade what I have because my life is way too good, and I look at it because I'm a gambler as a bet. If I put. Five dollars down or even flip a coin on a golf course or anything which i don't do any betting i do nothing zero like if i do any of that i even have alcohol-free mouthwash like anything am i willing to trade everything that i've gotten so far for that and the answer is no 100 percent of the time yeah So when you, when you build a program and you build a life that you're proud of it really pales in comparison to a drink if you do if you're working the program
1: it absolutely does the feeling the peace of mind the you know what you're getting out of it so something that you posted on LinkedIn, which is really the reason that I reached out to you in the first place to be on the podcast. Um, and it was sort of like a before and after type of post, right? Where there was a picture of you before and a picture of you after, and then you kind of explained um, how before you'd sell your soul for a commission, you saw people as dollar signs, and now you look to develop genuine relationships with people and to be a man of your word. And a lot of people who aren't haven't wrestled with addiction or whatever, don't understand that this is about so, 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 so much more than not drinking or not using or not gambling or whatever. Like it's, um, it's a symptom. We have spiritual malady, full flight from reality, like all these things that the literature talks about. Right. And so, um, tell us about how your program has shaped your emotional sobriety. You've already talked a little bit about how you interact with people, resentments and how you deal with this, but, um, what does it look like for your emotional sobriety now in terms of how you show up in relationships, how you treat people, just, just how has it changed and shaped your emotional world?
0: You couldn't take anything I said prior to my sobriety. You couldn't take it. It meant nothing. My word was a total, it was fleeting with the wind. It was, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Mike said it, whatever. Now I pride myself on the truth and, and I, I, you know, in a world full of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. It just is. And it's crazy. Like it's, you just start telling people the truth and they're like, wow, I didn't expect you to do that. And it just, it's almost like we're set up to evade a lie or whatever we are. So I just started telling the truth. One of the things that stuck with me is early on, they told me that if you don't change, your sobriety date will. And I just, they, they told me that. And I, I was like, I don't want my sobriety date to change. And it was like, and I, and I could see in the program because i was going to meetings i could see people that were like not doing like they were just not drinking and there wasn't wasn't anything there and i was like that just doesn't look fun that looks miserable like i want to be one of those happy people and i want to recover and so they also told me that if you were you know if you have a drunken horse thief and you take away the alcohol what do you have and you have a sober horse thief and it's like there was so much more to this and so um for me it's it's telling the truth it's it's caring about someone actually for what they are like i don't need anything from amanda amanda doesn't need anything from mike but yet i care about amanda and i think amanda cares about mike like i just that level of like not needing something not manipulating somebody not playing my card you know like kind of face down face up like that kind of like looking over your shoulder life or whatever it just it's a lot easier i'm not running um and that that to me is people if you would ask anybody that's close to me now they would say if there's nothing else about Mike, it's that he tells the truth and he's an honest guy and we know what we're going to get. Like, and that, that to me is, you could never say that about me for 30 years. You couldn't say that. There's no way you could say that because it was like what you heard on Monday. You didn't hear on Tuesday. Monday's truth was, was Tuesday's lie. Like it didn't, it, it just didn't matter. And so now it's, this is what happened. You know what I mean? This is what it was like. This is what happened. This is what it's like now. And it's just the, the truth is the truth. And, and that's the thing about absolute truth for me is that if it's absolute, it never changes. And so like, that's why I just do that. And my my focus on on any relationship I have is just rigorous honesty. I've heard that honesty is when I tell you the truth. Rigorous honesty is when I tell myself the truth. And that's what I've been doing.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I love that because we forget about, are we actually being honest with ourselves? Which is why people end up relapsing in this and that because you start, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I can't control my drink, right? We start lying to ourselves. We believe the lie and then we go do the thing. And totally. I think when you're talking about the people who are truly happy, joyous, and free. It's those people who are, um, who are rigorously honest. And I think too, when I came into AA, I, um, I, I was weirded out by the fact that people were doing things for each other for nothing in return. I just don't like, that is not the world we live in. And it is, it seems suspicious to me. I was like, what is the angle? I don't get this. What's well, okay. It helps people stay sober. I get it now, but also you genuinely yeah. care like a newcomer that i met five seconds ago. I love her and I want to help her and I don't even know who she is and it doesn't even matter. And like, there's just a really good feeling about that. Like we were talking about earlier showing up for each other. So,
0: um, a quick story on that. I remember when I had about two and a half months of sobriety, I got in a little fender bender and my car was, I had to send it to the shop This is before my license got suspended because it got suspended in September that year, but before it got suspended, and I was at a meeting and I was telling this one guy about a guy that's fender bender and whatever. And I was talking to him. And this guy, like six people down, who I don't even know. I think I said four words to him in two and a half months. He's like, hey, don't worry, I got I got an extra car for you. I'm like, what's your name? And he told and he literally let me use his car for a week. I'm like, dude, I'm a three-time DUI offender. Do you know what you're doing? Like, what? You're gonna give me your car? And he just gave it to me. And I was like, okay. And
1: I, and I asked him, I was like, what do you want? And he's like, nothing.
0: Just just Get to where you need to get to and stay sober. That's it. Just carry the That's message. True. And I was it's, like, oh my
1: God. It's so that yeah. Well, how, how has it changed your work life? Like, do you feel like getting, since getting sober, do you feel like your professional life has changed as well? You said you're more successful financially and everything else, but like, what about relationally or maybe even how you exhibit your behaviors that you've learned in the program? Um, attraction, not promotion, not that other people are alcoholics, but just, you know, honesty, apologizing when you're uh, wrong, being vulnerable, I mean, like I mean, stuff like that. How has that I mean, helped you? I mean,
0: yeah, when people ask me how do you practice these principles and all are your fears, I'm like, how do you not? If you're changed, it, it, how, like, how could it not happen? Like, it's it's almost like it's almost like you know, it got it's almost like God doing a miracle in you, and then you still believing that there's not a God. Like, it's crazy. And so, um, anyways, uh, for me, it's it work, It's uh, you can ask any client I work with. You can ask any candidate I've ever worked with that since I've been sober that they're like. <laughs> He does the job different. He tells us whatever in, in recruiting in, in the world that I'm in, it can be kind of used car salesman. It's not the great it doesn't. Have the, it's kind of a, there's an underbelly to recruiting. That's not the most glamorous for a lot of people to, to admit. And what I do is I just I play my cards face up and I'll tell a candidate, hey, this is not a good job for you. You shouldn't take this job. I'll tell a client, don't hire this candidate. They're not serious about your job. I'm like I will do the things that need to be done to preserve the relationship because it's right. And right. I, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I've had clients reach out to me saying, hey, my wife is struggling with sobriety, hey, whatever, like my candidates have struggled or whatever. And they're like, hey, I've, I've dealt with it constantly and I'm all I can do is just share my story. And I've often said a story is only as good as the life that it impacts. And like, if it doesn't do anything, then what good is it? And so, um, yeah, for me, it's my coworkers know that they're going to get the truth. They know I'm going to show up. I'm going to say I'm going to be there. I'm there. Like, I don't back out. I'm a hustler. I'm the hardest worker they've ever seen, like all of that stuff. And it's everything I was never before. It's just polar opposite. So I would say whatever you did, drinking and using, it's the exact opposite if you do, if you actually exhibit the program within your work life. So um, right. yeah, I have friends that are, I have clients that invite me to their baby showers and play golf with them. And they're like, hey, this is my wife. And this is what I'll be in town. Do you want to go to you know, Not get a drink, but do you want to go? I'm going to a rodeo next week with a client. Like these are things that would never happen. Never if I wasn't sober, never.
1: That's so, that's so cool. And like I've, I've said before to people, it it over time, you're so steeped in the principles and you, you exercise these things every single day in your life and you get tested a lot and you've got to apply it. You've got to apply mm-hmm. your program to all these people, places and things or whatever. And it's not it's not something I do anymore. It's who I am. You literally, really? like you said, if the change happens, the change happens throughout. It's, it's, yeah. and when we, well, I, I can't say we, but when I do something that I know does not align with my program, I feel it immediately. And I want to clean it oh, up. It's like an emotional hot potato. I'm like, Oh, ah, yes. I need to get rid of this. Yeah. immediately. Let me go fix that. Mm-hmm. And maybe I just snapped at somebody or maybe I kind of, jumped to a conclusion and was unfair to somebody or whatever, but it's it's you know not that anybody's ever perfect, and you don't want to get on some kind of moral high horse, but <clears throat> it feels good to have the uh, awareness first of all. Like that doesn't feel good. I I didn't feel good when I acted that way, but also right. when you go and apologize to somebody, ninety nine percent of the time they're like, oh, thank you, thank you for saying you're sorry. We're good, we're cool, you know.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but in our minds, the my old mind my ego was so huge that like the thought of apologizing was just yeah but now it feels so good to be like i'm really sorry i acted like that you did not deserve that feels good you know and people deserve that people deserve that respect you know
0: it's massively liberating
1: is there anything that you regret from your drinking days that you've had a hard time um forgiving yourself for because it says uh, we will no longer regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it right that's one of the promises but Sometimes for people, they, they struggle with forgiving themselves. I carry mom guilt. I have from the seven years that I drank and use, there's mom guilt that I will take to my grave. I know that. Um, so do you have anything that, that crops up for you that you still have to kind of work through forgiving yourself for?
0: Yeah. So, uh, I introduced a lot of people to cocaine. A lot of people, um, that started whatever they're doing, I believe because of me, whether they're still doing it, I don't know. Um, So I did a lot of that and I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of, like you said, for that, for that. Once I, once I really dove into my faith, um, I realized that guilt and shame is something that the devil just wants, wants me to feel. Um, And the Bible talks about grace and I, and, and like, remember it wasn't anything or anyone that saved me it was god ripped ripping me and saying i'm doing for you what you can't do for yourself so if he can do that for me he can do that for them it doesn't mean i'm proud of what i did but it means it is it doesn't matter like like deny yourself pick up your cross follow me daily deny yourself pick up your cross follow me daily deny yourself pick up your cross follow me daily and like it's just not about the past it's like go and sin no more go and go like that's it it doesn't matter And so for me, once I realize that I've been forgiven, it's just so, it's like, okay, like if God, if God doesn't see it anymore, because he sees the blood of Jesus, like I'm not, I'm good. So, and and I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't discredit what I did, but what I'm saying is I'm now an open book and I'm a different guy. And like, that is the definition of being cleansed, being washed in the blood. And like, and I'm grateful for that. So I don't really, um, I don't really battle too much with that anymore, to be honest with you and at all, to be honest with you.
1: Good. And I'm glad that I love that. I love that because it is, it's a, it is a, a tool from the enemy, right. That wants to keep us stuck and ruminating on that stuff. Um, is there anything that you miss about, I guess your old lifestyle and throughout these questions in this conversation, I, I feel like the answer is going to be no. Um, but for me personally, sometimes I, I do miss the ability to check out, um, when I feel really overwhelmed or having just lost my dad to cancer. And I just was feeling all these things and There's no amount of meetings or anything that's going to make the grief process speed up or so there that instantaneous moment of, you know, taking a drink or a pill or doing coke or whatever, knowing it wasn't going to fix anything, but just knowing that that immediate relief was there. um, That's the only thing every now and then that that will crop up for me. Do you ever have do you ever have moments like that where you miss um, anything that the old lifestyle offered you? Mm.
0: i mean I to I, I mean, be honest i mean uh, it literally it, it's good to use the term moment because if i had it it's gone like it's not it's yeah. so in and out I, I just i don't let myself go there and it's not even that I, I don't even i think even if i told myself to go there i'd be like oh no i don't want to go there yeah. like, it just doesn't I, no i'm so far removed from it that i don't ever want to go even near it and so anyways no I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna be my shortest answer yet no
1: that's good. And that's good. And my that's my thing, too, is it's very fleeting. But at the same time, when it does crop up, um, like when I was overwhelmed with sadness, I just was like, I don't want to be feeling this way anymore. Um, but the truth is, I need to. I should. I love yeah. my father. I miss him. Like this is this grief is a beautiful process that that person deserves and we are honoring them and our love for them by grieving them. But the old me, of course, wanted to escape anything uncomfortable. And so there's still that yeah. part. Of my every now and then it's like, you know, you don't have to feel like this right now if you don't want to. And then I remember what it what it really being. Yeah. So, OK, my last question for you, and this is really just more of a prompt, um, but I just you've already talked about your faith a ton throughout, but tell us about your faith. And then we'll end on that.
0: Um, my faith is simple. It's, I mean, it's not simple. It's 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 deep. It's real. It's 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 alive to me. Um, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. There's no question about it. Um, the life that I live is is one that I want to be pleasing to Him. And I get emotional when I talk about it. But like, um, you know, I, I ran from Him for a long time, and yet He He, he chased me down, and, and He and He said, "Hey, dude, i I've been here the whole time." And and I, of course, I ignored Him forever, and, and now I'm um, it's it's it's. I'm, I'm all in. There's no, there's no, I don't, I don't care about the commission. I don't care about the sale. I don't care about the, the girlfriend. I, I care about Jesus and my relationship and letting people know that there is a savior of the world that, you know, we are, we are, we are born running away from God. We are born into sin. We are, everybody's a sinner and the, and, and, and we all run away. And like, there's this redemptive grace that like this ever loving God. And, and what I've learned is that, you know, <laughs> God, it, there's, The world has created a million different cultures and religions and, and our, and we kind of like created our own God, how we want him to be. And this is how you attain him because we invented him so we can make how we attain him and whatever. And God is like omniscient, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once, all the time, forever. And it's like, why would I not yield to a God like that? that has the world in his control. I'm like, I'm worried about my whole life. And he's like, dude, I created everything. Relax, I got it. Like, chill out. Like, I'm good. Like, get out of the way. Let me be a vessel. Don't go against the grain. I'll be here for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. Like, I, I give the birds of the air food. What do you think I won't take care of you? Like, get real. And so he's so sovereign and he's so present and he's so loving. He's so merciful. He's so just. He's all of those things. And it's forever something that I can depend on. And that to me is a great thing. Um, I've got about one minute left, but I, I will talk about this. My whole life, I was sitting on a fence. And it was the devil, and it was, it was you know, the, the the blow and the cocaine, the drinking the drugs and all of that. And on this side was Jesus and God and salvation and sanctification and holiness and all of the stuff, whatever. And God was knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And the devil was just waiting there. He wasn't really knocking, but he was just waiting there, tempting me, tempting me, tempting me. So he does that. And Jesus finally left and said, go ahead. Dude, go be under yourself. And so for 10 years, I just went and did my thing. Finally, what happens is, the devil, when Jesus left, the devil's like, good, go ahead. The, the biggest lie the devil ever tells us is you're good. You're have fine. He comes back and he says, hey, Mike, you're mine. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say yes to you. I didn't say yes to Jesus, but I didn't say yes to you. And he said to me, I own the fence too. And when he said that, it was like, okay, I'm either all in or I'm not doing anything. And so that's, and that's why my faith is I'm all in. Like, it's just nothing. There is, it's. Yeah. Nothing will separate me from that. It's all, it, all or nothing. Which is why, and, and when I made that commitment, my faith went ahead of my sobriety because I believe that you know all things are through are possible through Christ who to me. So that's my feel on that, and I hope that kind of helped. Thank
1: out. you. That was amazing. I appreciate you so much. That was such a wonderful conversation. I know you have to run to another another engagement, but thank you, Mike. I appreciate you.